Well, um, it's, it's only been a week for you, but it's been a week of student camp for me, so it seems a lot longer since I've been here to me. Um, uh, what a great week we had. I noticed that we have several students n- not here today, still recovering probably from camp, although I'm the old man and I made it back. I don't know what their excuse is. Um, we had a great week of camp. You have a great group of kids. Um, our students are just, they're phenomenal, and uh, it was an awesome week. I would, I would love for you to consider looking ahead into the future and trying to hold off enough vacation days um, to look into serving at things like student camps and, and mission trips and, and stuff like that. It will, it will impact your faith. It'll impact your walk with Christ when you get to get under the, kind of to the tip of the spear, to the nose to the grindstone, so to speak, or whatever the right terminology is. So um, anyway, be, be thinking along those lines. It's a, it's a great opportunity to be a part of stuff. I um, also want to recognize they were here in the first service, um, and, and so I did this once a few weeks ago, and now this will just be a habit, so let me know if this happens in your marriage. But the Helgesons have been married for 50 years as of the last uh, few weeks ago, and so... Um, Man, of, of all the things worth mentioning from the pulpit, that one seems to count. And so I would, I would love to really encourage everybody. We've got people in the church who know how to make it last. Um, and so find them. That's why there are pictures up there so you can find them later and ask them to disciple you, um, especially her. So uh, if you know Eric, you know she's, she's a saint. So, um, uh, and he would agree with me. So the, um, I would, I would uh, encourage you with that. In fact, on that note, um, I do want to mention in a couple of weeks, we're really going to look at, unpack our life groups, the different life groups that we're going to be having. Um, I think John may mention that. And then, um, so we want you to be aware of that. And yet there's no reason to wait until then. You can go online and start looking at, the, at all the different life groups that are going to be available. We really do believe it is vitally important um, for believers to be involved in small uh, church groups. So like, it's like church, but on the small scale. And we really think that's important. And uh, we think everyone needs that. Every believer needs that. We need those friendships. We need to gather together um, and worship all in community. That is important. And so is making sure that you've got a small group of people that you're growing with, that they can actually, you can really dive in and talk about your life and theirs as well. So really want to encourage you with all of those. Um, And we'll be talking more about the details of those coming up, but there are a lot of options coming up. All right, so um, uh, we are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, Matt Lance last week did a great job of kind of wrapping up chapter two, um, what, but I had failed to finish the part before his wrap up. And so, which is great because the way he wrapped it up makes it perfect for me to come back in and close in some gaps and, um, and to do some other kind of special stuff over the next few weeks that I think are going to be important um, to the life of our church as well. But I'm going to start in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor." So when Matt finished up this chapter, he pointed out that these passages about servanthood and obedience are so radical that Peter felt the need to defend them. 
And so he starts out the gate. You can tell he starts, he heads out, the, out of the gate and starts talking about the relationships between servants and masters, and he interrupts himself almost immediately before he even gets to parents and children, husbands and wives, <coughs> all of that. He interrupts himself to make sure you understand why, why he's commanding these things, why he's instructing these things. And so <coughs> it's kind of like with forgiveness. Um, so as a, as a therapist, one of my favorite things to do is to walk someone through the process of forgiveness. Um, there's a great power to being set free through the power of forgiveness. There's something that, that is important to us that is, that is key to our soul to forgiving others in our lives. However, when the secular world does get this idea of forgiveness, when they grab hold of it in any shape, form, or fashion, they start talking about the psychological benefits of forgiveness. Um, like maybe you'll sleep better, or you'll have less stress, or, or you'll just feel better about yourself. And listen, sometimes that may be true, but not by any means, always. And, and Jesus, when Jesus commands multiple times for us to forgive people, he never links any of those things to it. He never says, because um, it'll make you feel better, um, you won't have to pay so much for therapy, you're less likely to get divorced, whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't say any of those. His 100% entire only argument is because I forgave you. It's his only argument. I did it, so you do it. Same thing with rest, right? Is rest good for us? Yes. Have we had all types of evidence of the benefits of it? Sure. But is that the motivation we ever get for our commands to rest? Not once. It is always you rest. Why? Because I did. If I thought it was important, you should think it's important. It's fascinating that when you talk with people about rest, I mean, about forgiveness, even Christians, they will come in prepared to defend why they shouldn't have to forgive somebody. It's just natural. We do that. The thought that we would need to forgive somebody, we, we kind of start compiling all these reasons why that would not be right. And, and it may just be because we misunderstand what forgiveness is. And uh, you can read several things about that. We've preached, I've preached about it in the past. I've got articles about it on my website. It's vitally important that we do that. But we start compiling this like, well, but if you only knew, and if you would, and the consequences, and, the, and we compile this whole big argument, and we come before God, and he says, I said to forgive. And we go, yeah, but what's your argument for that? And he says, well, because I did. And at that point, you have to go, well, shoot. Never mind. I'll tell you, what, I'm just going to go with that then. That's his whole argument. That is exactly the whole argument for the entire rest of 1 Peter. That you go, I don't, well, I don't, I'm supposed to do this in regards to my husband. I'm supposed to do this in regards to my wife, slaves, servants, masters, children, parents, all that. What? And the answer is, you're called to this because Christ suffered for you. You have to suffer? Yes, you do. Is it going to be hard? Yes, it is. He did it. You do it. That's the whole argument. You were called to this because Christ suffered for you. And there's still even more to unpack there that we'll get to. So, but for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on this one. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 16. Now, in the Greek, if we're not careful in the English, that sounds like it gets turned into an action sentence um, because the word live is an action verb here. But that verb does not appear in the Greek. Um, it's, it's, it's not intended to be an action passage. It's an identity passage. Because you are this, you would not do this. If you, if you have this, then, do, then not this. It's a, it's a this or that type of statement. Technically, in the Greek, it says, as free, instead of using your freedom as a veil for evil, but as servants of God. See, it's an identity statement. This is what you are. You are free. As free, 
It's kind of like that. You are free, and as free, do not use your freedom as a veil for evil. Instead, as servants of God. Now, the implication is we're supposed to live that way, but it's more than just live as an act. It is live as in, this should be your breathing. This is who you are. This is what you are. It's an identity statement. And so it would make no sense to use your freedom, which you are free, as a cover-up for evil. <coughs> You're actually purchased. This is, this is a, an interesting conversation that I've had over the years with people about giving. So uh, it's been interesting to me over the years to have people refer to, one, defer to tithing as something less than 10%. Just to help you out, the word tithe means Tenth. That's what the word means. And so when someone says, well, I'm tithing about 3%, you're like, well, I mean, that's awesome. That offering is, that, that 3% offering is awesome. It's not a tithe. Tithe is 10%. That's what 10%, that's what tithe means. But automatically, especially in the Baptist world, me saying that, in fact, many of you already did it in your head, you were like, but Jesus doesn't say we're supposed to tithe. The New Testament doesn't say we're supposed to tithe. That's where you immediately go, right? It's where your brain goes automatically. That's an example of using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's an example of that. You're going, I don't have to tithe. See, it's free. No, no, I've been set free. I no longer have this legalistic law that requires me to give a tenth. And actually, it was more like 22% for the Hebrews, by the way. But, but I'm no longer required under this law to give a tenth. I'm not obligated to do it with an arm twisted. Fine, 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 I'll do it. Now, I'm totally free to give as much as I want. I'm totally free to just give out of, the, out of the opulence that God has given to me. So, of course, I give a lot less than someone who would give out of obligation. That doesn't seem right. That seems like you're using your freedom. And by the way, Jesus just presumed a tithe. He didn't, he didn't teach it because he knew you already knew that. Well, of course that's good. When he talks to the Pharisees and he goes, you, you guys give a tenth of everything, even stuff you don't have to give a tenth of. I mean... Great. Of course you do. Right. Obviously. Now, another thing would be cool is for you to learn to be kind, compassionate. Like Those are even more important. Of course he prizes those over the money. God doesn't need the money. But it's an example, I think, of sometimes we jump immediately to like, no, but I'm free to not have to give money. Yes, yes, that, that's right. You're right. You, you don't have to. That's true. But out of appreciation for the freedom that God has given you, Seems like we'd be inspired not more to be to be giving more, not less. Incidentally, he gave, he actually purchased us. This is a wild concept. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 23 says. When it talks about us being free people, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So if you, if you were a bondservant to a human, you're now free in Christ. If you were free to humans, you're now a bondservant to Christ because in one sense, as Christians, as Christ followers, we are free, and in another sense, we are slaves, bondservants, people who have dedicated their whole lives to serving someone by choice. Verse 25, you were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. See, we've been set free to be His servant. Uh-huh. So you thought maybe being free meant serving no one, but that's not an option. Ask yourself, what would it look like if you serve no one, then who would your master be? Yourself. And we've talked about this. 
We've talked about it so many times that the minute I said that, last service, someone on the front row said, have you met you? That was the first thing that came out of my mind. Have you met you? Before I could even say it. It just said, don't become bondservants of people. Don't become bondservants of men. Don't become bondservants of human being. If you think you're a good choice to be a master, then you haven't met you. How many different ways can a human being say this? You are not the best choice for trusting your life to. You're not the best choice for trusting your eternity to. None of us are. You and I are petty, vindictive, power, I mean this in all kindness, petty, vindictive, power-hungry, narcissistic, and probably would be abusive masters. Every one of us. Go ahead and tell yourself that isn't true. It is, it is the, lie, the historical lie that we have that somehow we are on this moral high mountain looking down on all these moral uh, um, cave people, Neanderthals from the past, because we're, we would never have followed the crowd back in those awful times. We would, we would have all, all of us would have been one of the people standing up for what was right, because that's how that works. It's painful to admit we are just as broken. We like to think of ourselves as the type who would never buy into the kind of junk that our, our forefathers have bought into. That's okay. Our children and children and children will think that about us too, the same junk that we've bought into. We're not trustworthy masters. Human history doesn't offer us many good examples of human beings as masters, does it? That's not going to suddenly start with you or me. Now, I would not agree a lot with uh, the uh, philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, He's a French philosopher and writer and composer from the 1700s. He had many views that would be in direct conflict with Scripture. I would say some of it laughable. But he was once quoted to say something that I would agree with. He said, freedom is the power to choose your own chains. I think as humans, that's as close as we get to freedom. The freedom to choose our own chains. You're going to be chained to something. What are you going to be chained to? It's amazing that God has given us the freedom to choose to be chained to Him or chained to ourselves or chained to the world or chained to money or chained to Satan or chained to picket other people. We can be chained, but we're all going to be chained to something. And, and ourselves should be the one thing that we know is not a good option. We have personal experience to prove that we are not good masters of ourselves. Therefore, to chain ourselves to ourselves would seem ultimately foolish. I would prefer to choose someone who is morally upstanding, perfect, wise, righteous, just. And I'm not any of those things. So it doesn't seem like I'm going to be the best choice for me. We want to choose wisely. No matter what Rousseau's tone was, this is accurate. You will have a master. So um, when I was um, uh, in a Bible study years and years ago with a group of guys that we met at 7 a.m., which was a bad idea for me, um, it just means I was ornery and, and argumentative in every study. It, it, it was just bad. I eventually set them free by sleeping in and not coming anymore. But um, at, at, I remember in one of the studies, what stood out for me, and I think why God had me in that study for a while, was this experience. So there was a, a really neat guy named, whose name was Abe in the study. And Abe, um, Abe one day said, he came in and said he had had a vision from God. And his vision was that he was... He was um, Sitting there, standing before God, and God said, um, Abe, I, here, I want you to come over here and sit at this chair, and I've got this table, this desk for you, and I've got a yellow legal pad here. Here's a pen. I want you to write out your life. Moving this point forward. He was a young man at the time. He said, I want you to write out from this point forward. I want you to, I want you to write out about what kind of marriage you're going to have, what kind of kids you're going to have. Are you going to write books? Are you going to preach? Are you going to be on TV? Are you going to be on the radio? 
There was no internet yet, but all this type of like, are, what, are you gonna, what are you going to be like? What's your ministry going to be like? I'm going to let you, uh, listen, I'm going to let you draw it all out. I'll let you write it all out. How, how victorious will you be over sin? Tell, us, tell me about what, how your relationship to addictions is going to look like. What are, you gonna, what are your main points and what ministries are you going to start? And as Abe's describing this, I'm doing the same thing in my mind, and hopefully you are too, going, man, I mean, I was a combination at that stage of Chuck Swindoll and Billy Graham and uh, focused on the family guy, James Dobson and, uh, and, and Chuck Colson and uh, Tony Evans. And I mean, I was, I was a combination of all these people as I was writing. I mean, I was going to be writing books and being on TV and traveling and speaking and being at Promise Keepers and, and all this type of stuff. Like I was, I, I had this really great, and, and I got it done. And, and in my head, I'm doing this as fast as I can because I know he's wrapping up the story. And Abe says, so I, I get it all done. And, and God says, let me see it, Abe, let me see it. And he shows it to him and he's like, this, Abe, this is phenomenal. Like, this is great stuff. I'm, I'm really super impressed. Like, you have chosen all good things, and I love it, love it. Um, and there's nothing bad on here at all. You've not put a single sin on here. You've not put any place where you fall or you struggle. You've not, like, none of that. This is, this is all great stuff, Abe, and here's the deal. I'm going to let you have it. I'm just going to give it to you. Or you can have my yellow pad that I wrote for you, but you don't get to look at it first. This is the way we ask who our master is. That's the actual question. It isn't just, well, I want to I give in to my secret sin. It is, do I choose my things that I want out of life, even if they're good, over what God has for me? Who's my master and who's the servant? This is the, this is the picture I would love to encourage you with. That, that story has continued to stick with me. Choose wisely. You don't want to serve a corrupt administration then you better not be your administration. We are supposed to live instead as servants of God. In the Greek, that phrase, and this has got a t-shirt written all over it someday, has dule theoph, servants of God. So what are some of the responsibilities that as servants of God that we shirk? What are the ways that we use our freedom as a cover-up for evil? Maybe you immediately think of some secret sin, you think it's some secret sin that you know the grace of Jesus covers, so you indulge your flesh anyway. Because you know Jesus has it covered. And incidentally, my doctrine and my understanding of grace is, you're right. He does. His grace is sufficient. It's the scariest thing about being a preacher teaching about grace. Is that people say, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying I could just totally do whatever I want because His grace is sufficient? And I would say, yep. It's that sufficient. His grace is that mighty and that great. Peter says the same thing. That's why he comments, please don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's acting like a servant again to the world or to sin. Why would you act like a slave to the things that Jesus just set you free of? That's ridiculous. Maybe that's the deal. You've got some secret sin that you know Jesus has covered. Yep, that, that would count as using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Maybe it's a character flaw that you're not willing to look at. Your children tell you about it. Your spouse tells you about it. Your friends tell you about it. You're not listening to the Holy Spirit about it. Your perfectionism, your impatience, your malice, your self-righteousness, your justification, your arrogance, your worry, your envy. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, I hope my spouse is listening to that list. 
Maybe there's something there for you. Maybe something that we aren't growing up in. Yes, that counts as using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. It is. If we're not willing to grow and change, if we're not willing to submit our character flaws, years ago there was a man in the church who used to refer to his anger as the cross that he had to bear. That's, not a, that's an incorrect use of that passage, one. Two, I'm pretty sure it was more our cross to bear, not his. He had just decided, yep, I've got an anger problem, and everybody's got to deal with that. I've got this arrogance issue. I, listen, I just say it the way it is. I just speak the truth. Okay, so you're just disobedient to the old other half of that commandment then, about speaking the truth in love. Yeah, those, those count as using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. But I think there's another one that we're guilty of. We selfishly and sometimes even cowardly in the way we hold on to the good news that Christ has given us, that we hoard it. Is one of the other things that we're supposed to do with our freedom is let the other slaves know that there's a master who's kind and good and gracious, to let the other orphans know that there's a father out there who wants to um, adopt them, to let the other beggars know where there are the handouts. The world is telling us how wrong it is to tell these things. How dare we impose our beliefs on other people who already have them? This is becoming a common message. It may not have fully infected Tyler, Texas yet, but I will tell you the rest of the nation is most of the way there. The shock on a young lady's face who did not grow up in church or, or does not go to church very much and ha- doesn't hear the gospel and hasn't grown up with it her whole life at student ministry camp as she asked the question, some questions that came together. And at one point I made the comment about, well, there are tribes still out there that are living these stone age lives. And we don't, it's not that we need to transmit um, you know, American modernism to them, God forbid, but they need to hear the gospel. They need to know about Jesus. And, and having not grown up with that message, she was shocked. She goes, uh, they are, whoa, 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 no, we need to leave them alone. They already have their own culture. They already have their own religion. How dare we go in and tell them about Jesus? I was like, that's, she has those, her view, her, what she's been trained with is the more common one. If you don't believe me, here's the statistics. Keep in mind, this is on, this is from 2018. This is, so it's only gotten worse since then. This is practicing Christians. Practicing Christian millennials. It's wrong to share one's personal belief with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will one day share that faith. It is wrong to share your faith. Practicing Christian millennials, almost 50% agree that it is wrong to share your faith. That it is immoral to share your faith. Now, it's millennials, which means millennials constantly, they always believe two things that are contradictory to one another. Um, if you want to have fun, somebody look up what they're looking for in a church. It's a blast. Notice that part of my faith means being a witness to Christ. Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Almost 100% of them agree with that statement. Part of my faith is about being a witness, but notice they also think it's morally wrong to share their faith. One, that's a tough contradiction for them to try to live in, but two... How likely are they to actually share it? Pretty much non-existent. But what if there is a truth? What if there is a God who has chosen people who don't know, and we need to go tell them? We need to let them know that He has died for them, and that He's chosen them, and that He loves them. This, this combination of therapeutic humanism that is such trash that's becoming the new religion, we have two religious options in the future, politics or therapy, and both of them make terrible religions. 
Politics is great for what it is, and therapy is awesome for what it is, and neither of them are good religions. They are awful, and yet they're being treated that way. Our motto at this church is that we're supposed to live, teach, and tell the gospel. You walk under those three words every time you walk in the front door, live, teach, tell. Um, it's okay, fine, did Jesus, but did Jesus himself, I was asked, did Jesus himself ever actually indicate that we should do something like this, that we should, that we should go, that we should tell other people about him? Well, I found a couple of places. Matthew 28, 18 says this, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Not unclear. Deep doctrine taught deeply right into the middle of that. We're not just supposed to go tell them you know, how to be better capitalist or, or have democracy. We're supposed to go, that's not our problem. Our problem is to go and tell them there's a God who loves them and to disciple them and to teach them to follow Jesus and to baptize them in the name of the triune God. He says it again in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So if you found someone who set you free, I have. I want you to tell other people about them. Invite them to the good news. You might think, I don't even know what it would look like to do that. I wouldn't even know what to say. I'm not even clear on what the gospel is. So for the next few weeks, we're going to remedy that. First, I'm going to invite up uh, Reagan Reed. So Reagan is the director of one of the BSMs here in Tyler. Uh, our director of one of, uh, over BSM here in Tyler. I just I stumble over that every time. Um, and he actually was up here and shared with us a few weeks ago. Oh. And uh, he usually shares this on a napkin, but I didn't think that would be very helpful. Or an index card. Yeah, index cards. So we have a big one here. This is a large napkin. So so this is an example of how you would share your gospel with somebody. Let me grab my coffee while you're sharing there. So how how would you go about doing that, Reagan? Yeah, so I get to work with college students or a number of those statistics that are up on the screen that he just showed. And so um, this is one of the trainings that we typically do, or I guess a portion of that training that we do with college students. Um, So the way we kind of try to organize that is uh, by three questions, three circles, and three responses. We're not going to talk about the responses, but we the three questions that we'll typically open with, because how do we get into conversations about the gospel? I feel like that's a big barrier for a lot of us, um, is how do we get into those? And so uh, first question is, is ask any spiritually related question. You can ask where they go to church, what's their spiritual background, can you pray for them? It can be any of those. Those are very natural questions. You just got to get the spiritual conversation started. The second question is, well, do you feel near or far from God right now uh, in this season? And just have a conversation about that. And after y'all have had that conversation, then you could ask, well, can I show you a, a picture or a tool that I've learned that helps me to, or that's helped me to be closer to God and understand my relationship with him? And so that's typically how we ro- go into that. And we'll spare y'all the role play of me and Chris going back and forth on that. Uh, but um, that's typically how we start. And so, but Chris will um, kind of help it with the conversation. So I'm going to uh, act like I'm sharing with Chris. And so this is typically how we do it. So, um, yeah. So Chris, um, yeah, we're out on campus today um, and was, uh, we're sharing our faith with people. And, but we're curious if we could uh, have a conversation about yours. Or would you be open to that? Sure. Be studying. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so I, we'll go ahead and um, jump into this then. And so we skipped all the three questions now. And then so uh, what we, when we see our world, one thing that we see about it um, right out of the gates and it's really obvious is that this world is broken. Yep. And that we, we don't have to look very far. It's in our world. It's in our country. It's in our families. Um, it's even within our own lives. So it's, it's very obviously broken. But what we see about God's design is that it wasn't broken. It hasn't always been that way, that God's love was fully put on display and there wasn't all of this pain and brokenness and suffering that we were experiencing. So the natural question is, well, what happened? Hmm. Well, people, um, all people really, even from the first ones, chose to go against God's perfect design and to go their own way, which we would say is sin. Uh, and ultimately, sin has to be paid for. There's a consequence for going our own way against God's plan and that ultimately is in death and ultimately being separated from God for, forever. And so, but we realize this brokenness and we want to try to escape it. And so I'll open this up a little bit. What are some ways that we, we try to escape brokenness? Maybe Chris can get us kick-started. So you mean, you don't, you don't mean how do I escape the feelings? You mean how do I try to solve this problem? Like how Either. do I try to solve this problem? Or do you, because, I mean, I, I just numb out. This is how yeah. I self, stay away from it. Yeah, self-medicate or, you yeah. know, go to substances or entertainment. So that may be one way we try to escape. What are some other ways people try to escape brokenness? Young, feel free to shout them out. Relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can get one center and another center and put them together, that'll help us escape it. Bad idea. <laughs> What's some others? Being, Being good. good. Yeah, if we can be good enough. What was another one? A cause. A cause. A cause. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I caused around and I was like, okay. I was wondering what the effect was. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> that was totally out of it. So uh, maybe, maybe it's being successful. Uh, maybe it's, you know, having achievements or being things that we accomplish. So we can have things like accomplishing things, or maybe we make enough money, and that'll solve our problems if we can just pay them away. Um, or even, too, we had one mention, maybe it's good things. Uh, maybe it's like going to church, um, mm -hmm. praying, um, walking old ladies across the street, enough to kind of just cover up some of the bad things. But the reality of it is, is all of these things, even though they are good things, they don't actually answer our sin problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so God sees us in our brokenness and sees the problem that we had within, and he responded. And what we see is, is he, he provided a solution in the life of Jesus by coming into our world personally and living his life on display and began restoring a number of the broken things, whether it be our lives or the suffering, the things that we were experiencing. But what we see is at the end of his life, rather than us making him king and him um, conquering everything, instead he gave his life as a sacrifice by dying the death and making the mm. payment for sin. But what we see is, is he didn't stay dead. Mm -hmm. So what makes Jesus um, different than anybody else that ever lived and not just a martyr was that he rose again from the grave both defeating death and defeating our sin. And so, but the question is, well, how are we, how does this actually apply to our lives? How are we connected to this? So you might be asking that. Well, Jesus teaches us that in his life, and we get to see that in the scriptures where he teaches that if we will admit that we are a sinner and that that, that brokenness is ours, and we know that personally, that we believe that he is the one true God and he's the one savior that can actually pay for our sin and actually free us from it um, and ultimately commit our lives to him, to follow him um, after that and, and to walk in obedience. That when we admit, believe, and commit that Jesus promises to restore us back into God's perfect design and to begin uh, making us new. So 
He tells us in 2 Corinthians that we'll be new creations in Christ and that we'll receive his Holy Spirit. And so out of this, um, there is one other cool thing after God does that is just like God saw us in our brokenness and gave, and he responded by sending Jesus, he also calls us to look back at the brokenness too if we've been restored. And so he gives us the opportunity to go back into this broken world just like he did to tell others about how they can be restored to you. And so, Chris, everybody's on this in one place or another. So where would you say your life is? Okay, interesting, because there's a follow-up conversation, because we had this conversation once before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I under, actually did understand differently something that you said this time. So I actually would, I, I certainly, I mean, I, 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 I get what you're saying about sin. I grew up in church. I understand that. I always thought going to church would be good enough, though. So that's... I mean, I guess, I guess I'm kind of in here where, I mean, not like I go now in college, but, um, but all these good things, you know, all these good yeah. things, I mean, I, I would have thought that would be good. That yeah, so, that you would would, so if you were to put a mark, you'd probably say you're somewhere in here? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that everyone does bad things, but mm. I, I'm not fully, I don't fully yet understand why me being good isn't, isn't enough to, mm. to undo the whole sin thing. I mean, I sin, but, you know, not all the time. Oh, for sure. And so the thing is, is, is that how, I guess, what is, what, how are you going to answer for your sin or how are you going to um, actually pay for the death that sin requires? Is that-, that was what the way you said at this time made sense to me was you're saying that death was, sin did equal death, just not, it doesn't have to equal my death. That's what you're saying because it equaled his death already. So it wouldn't have mm-hmm. to equal mine if I did these. Well, it's, it's a both. So we, like God calls us to, to take up our cross and to die as well. And so for us to die to self and become this new creation, that okay. the old, our old self would die as well, but then he makes us new. And so, but that's really where he invites us into this. And so is there, um, yeah, have you, I guess, how do you feel about this admitting the brokenness that you, it sounds that's, like you're That you're seems obvious to me. Everybody should say that one. So when you hear about what Jesus has done for you, is, is that a... A place where you'd like to believe. That's that's where I would. I'd love to. I'd be willing to have a conversation about that. Like yeah. If, if you're, I'd, I'd be willing to talk about that more. For sure. Yeah. Well, normally in this in a in a normal situation, we could sit here and we could actually have that conversation. Or let's say we didn't. Let's say we were in a time crunch and this isn't possible in the setting we're in. And I could say, well, yeah, I'd love to meet up again. Let's right. talk about that. And now that's our next conversation. And so as much as this is a evangelism conversation, this is actually your first step of discipleship. Right. Um, and for anyone that you're, you're wanting to help grow in the Lord, start with a gospel tool or, or with the gospel. Uh, and so. Very cool. Good. Any questions? Yeah. yeah. No, that was good. Well, Thank you. And I, one thing I want to encourage you with real quick is so for a lot of people, sharing their faith really freaks them out. Um, mm-hmm. We question what we know and if we know enough. Um, one of the things that really has impacted my, I guess, boldness in this is if, if I have enough or if if I believe I have enough to be saved by the gospel, I have enough to share it. Mm-hmm. And so for God to, to free me from my own sin, if I believe that and that's sufficient, then you know enough to tell someone else too. That's so true. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much, Reagan. Let me have that mic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good job. All right. So um, thank you. And that was, that's good. That's, also, that's a, a way. And we're going to be looking at numerous ways uh, to share our faith. But you're going... Yeah, but he's another paid Christian, right? Just like you. Like, you guys all know how to do this. You do it all the time. It doesn't scare you or freak you out to do it. It's no big deal. You would be lying to yourself, but that's what you're telling yourself. So in an effort, um, one of my things I used to love to do um, when I would go to schools and I was a student minister is I would go to the school 
And, and I would, as soon as I got to school, go to lunches or whatever, and I would go in and just start stopping students and say, hey, if I wanted a student to tell me about Jesus, if I was looking for another high schooler to tell me about Jesus, who would I ask? And even in schools of a thousand kids or more, they would all give me the same three names. It was always, there was always like three kids in the whole church, I mean in the whole school, who everyone knew, they're who you talk to about Jesus. That's who you would talk to about Jesus. And if they weren't part of my youth group, I would start actively trying to recruit them to come to my youth group. No, I didn't. Um, I would just shame my youth group. That's what I would do, probably, knowing me back then. So, uh, so in an effort to kind of create some of those same emotions for the rest of us who would go, yeah, but you're professionals. That's just what you do. Um, so I asked our student ministers and our, um, and our children's ministers, hey, I want, I want some names. Who should, who should I get to come tell me about Jesus? Which is really scary on stage. But the na- one of the names that kept coming back to me over and over again was Esther Anthony. So Esther, why don't you come on up? as well. So Esther's going to come up and share the gospel with me too. There's your, there's your chair. I'm going to go get mine. No, go to the other one. Sweetie, go over to that one right there. Yep. Thank you. All right. So tell me about the gospel. Tell me the good news. Well, first I have to ask, can you help me answer some questions? I will, I will do it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, first, if I was going to ask any of my friends, I would say, do you go to church? Okay, I do. Yep. Um, do you know what the true meaning of Jesus is? Um, why don't you tell me the true meaning of Jesus in case I'm wrong? Well, Jesus has two things about okay. him. There's a good news and a bad news. Which one do you want? <laughs> I love this. I'm going to go with the bad news first. The bad news is that we're all sinners and we deserve death. But then the good news comes in. The good news is that God gives us grace in two choices. Okay. One choice is that we, he can, we can either deserve death or mm-hmm. we can live in heaven with him. And heaven is basically good land and hell is basically bad land. There you go. Makes and sense. So would you like me to tell you more? I would, I would love for you to. Do you have more to tell me? Uh-huh. I mean, you've made it pretty clear it's so far. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to accept Jesus? That is a great question. What is it? So you're saying I would need to accept Jesus in order to... Go to heaven. Go to heaven. Okay. Is that something you've done? Yes. Yeah? And it's... Do you think it's a good thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I, I love you, your... Go ahead. You can accept Jesus by asking somebody at church, like, if you want, like, how you can accept Jesus. Thank you very much. Anything else? Wow, that was extremely clear. Very clear to me. Thank, I very much so appreciate that. That was good. Any questions? No? Uh, you're good. You nailed it. Thank you so much. So I don't, I don't know what your excuse was um, uh, before um, she... Uh, Shines out. It's just, just beautiful. What, what a great testimony and a great witness. And, and again, two obviously very different techniques for coming at this for different and different, two different people presenting it in two different ways. And you're going to see multiple more of them over the next few weeks. I don't want you to think that there's, like one, there's only one right way to do this, but you've heard now this morning the gospel presented very clearly at least twice. Um, very clearly. And so for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, who has not put their faith in Him, who has not chosen eternal life over death, 
Um, I hope you will do that this morning. I hope that'll be the choice you make. Um, I, would, I would love for that to be the case. And in a minute when we have our time of invitation, that's part of what that's for. There may need to be a response you need to have. Um, as we're preparing for 1 Peter 3, I think it is high time for all of us to be able to express the reason for the hope that is within us. Um, in my meetings, one of my meetings with Bob uh, Livesay, we get together about once a month, and he talked about being somewhere where he threw out, where the question was thrown out, what is the good news? What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And in this crowd of Christian people, only two felt like they could express it. And I said, I, I'm, I'm brokenhearted by that, Bob, but I'm wondering how true that is in general of the church. And not just our church, but the church. So we can do away with those excuses, no matter whether you're here or online, wherever you are. Like this, this is the gospel message that goes out into the world all the time. And there are people who are paying big prices for it. I don't, I don't think it's that we're unable. If it was, it won't be anymore. Unable isn't the issue. Um, I'm not sure that's it. I think it's that it's too awkward. I think it's that we're afraid people will judge us. I think fundamentally, I know with me, it comes down to the flesh. And the flesh is about avoiding emotions I don't like. I don't like certain feelings. And I don't like feeling awkward. And I don't like feeling embarrassed. And I don't like worrying that I'm going to offend somebody. And I, all those different things that I don't like those emotions. And I really think what motivates me to not share my faith is my emotions that I don't want to feel. And here we have Jesus who's telling us we should suffer persecution to the point of death in silence like he did, not blaming at least, maybe singing, maybe praising, maybe sharing the gospel, but not, not trying to defend ourselves, and yet I'm having a hard time pushing past awkward feelings. I think the issue is that we're just unwilling. Um, it's too much. This, we have been called to much more than this because he suffered for us. So as a free gift, he purchased me from slavery. And now I serve a benevolent master, a graceful master, a loving master. And someone who has called me to be not just a slave, but to serve him as a son or a daughter. And that's a whole other ballgame. I wouldn't even know how to treat me that way. So I want to pray over us that the gospel is filling up our hearts and I'm going to pray that it overflows into our community and into our homes, into our marriages and in our relationships with our kids and our parents and our family and into our neighborhoods, and that that gospel overflows into our conversations with people at the restaurants and, and at the grocery store and at work and other places. God, Christ has called us to do this here and afar. So let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would capture anyone whose heart in here today, um, anyone who didn't know that there's a free gift and the truth is the world is broken and I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with that. So how do we solve it? Just more broken people trying to do more broken things? I don't see how that's going to get us anywhere. Lord, the truth is, I pray that you would teach us, anyone in here who's never given up on themselves as their own master and instead turned themselves over to you, the purchase price that you've given for them, Lord, I pray that we would be able to accept the yoke that you give, the light one, the easy one, the one that's made for us, the one that fits us well, like a loving father would give. So Lord, I pray that we will be transformed by that. Anyone who doesn't know you would today would be the day of salvation for them. They would look to you and ask you to save them through your grace, not through our works, but through your grace. 
God, I pray um, for any of the rest of us that, that we, we would be overflowing into everything around us. Lord, I pray this morning um, for all of us that we would push past the flesh and into those conversations, and we do so in your Son's magnificent name. Amen. Stand, please, if you will. And we'll sing, pray, listen, um, whatever you need to do. You can come up here and pray if you want to. Um, uh, if you've already gone through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to come join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you. Um, and you can do that during this time as well. I think that kind of covers it. Colson.